Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there and welcome to the 70th edition of the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. I'm glad to have everybody out here uh, with me and uh, what better way to celebrate uh, com- coming up on 70 uh, than talking to one of our favorites, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher Carl Erskine. Carl, welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast as always. Well, thank you, uh, Sam, for finding me out here in the middle of Indiana. Thank you. Oh, for certain. And uh, another uh, Indiana born and bred is uh, Jim Denny. It's a local fireman from the area. He's going to be coming on to, to help us uh, discuss and dissect the uh, the town of Anderson, Indiana. Jim, welcome for the first time to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Carl. How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah, we're we're good. We're good, well, Jim. I, good, hope, good. I hope you don't get good called to away to the fire today. Yeah. I uh, know. I'm off today. <laughs> we were out all night last night, though. Well, yeah, speaking of which, uh, I think that's a good place to start with. Uh, Carl, I hear you You guys were jamming on uh, uh, you know, last night in front of some people. And uh, if you want to uh, tell us some, somewhat about your band. Well, yeah, we're, you know, I'm a non-professional, but I got some buddies that are are very good uh, musicians, and uh, we've got a little group. There's just four of us or five of us, but uh, the, somebody said, what's the name of your band? I said, we don't have a name. They said, we gotta have, we're going to put it in the program. we got to have a name. Well, I said, we don't have a name. Well, what kind of music do you play? Well, we just play old stuff. Well, that's your name, old stuff. <laughs> so, so that's the name of my band, but that's not the age of the band. That's the name of the music we play. But we did. We had a well. There's a church, a big church in Anderson, uh, First Methodist Church. They have an outdoor uh, park, and uh, we've played there before. Uh, it was too cold last night in Indiana and windy, so we all went inside and had a big picnic. Uh, and the room was packed, and my buddies uh, and I played for I bet close to an hour, and uh, the crowd was great. They were re- real responsive. And uh, we just played a lot of old tunes and uh, a few gospel songs, too, and uh, just had a great time. I would have loved to see that, and maybe I'll have to uh, come come around the next time that's, uh, that's occurring. Hopefully I can make my way out to uh, Anderson, Indiana. Now, uh, speaking of which, I thought that it was an interesting uh, – uh, when I when I called you about this podcast, I thought it was an interesting uh, contrast that you mentioned – that uh, come Memorial Day, everybody was going to be uh, coming around to the race, and I, and, you know, I, I casually was like, "Oh, what, what's what's the race?" And and you were, you, you know, it, it, you were obviously polite about it, uh, uh, but I, I think that uh, there's, you know, for the region, uh, there's only one thing that the race means around there, around Anderson, Indiana. Yeah, well, for a hundred years, this year, the anniversary of a hundred years, the Indianapolis Five Hundred which Indianapolis is about 30 miles from where I live in the town of Anderson. Uh, it will happen on Memorial Day, and uh, it's a big, big event. because It's always a big event. They have over 300,000 attend this race. They never, announce the, uh, they never announce the attendance for some reason, and for years it was never televised. Uh, but now both, uh, I think they do announce it now. But it's a, it's a huge event, and... Uh, and in Indiana, especially, a worldwide event, actually. It's 
it, it's, it, draws, uh, it draws interest from all over the world because of the significance of the race. It's, it's almost the masters in golf. It's almost the masters in uh, auto racing. But it's Indy cars, and that means it's a specific kind of race car. And uh, so, you know, I'm not into racing that much, although one day I was pitching in Pittsburgh on a Memorial Day, and we had a pot, we had a pool. So everybody drew a name out of a hat of the driver, one of the drivers in the race, and I got the name of Sam Hanks. This was about 1955. And uh, so I go out that day, and I forgot about the, the pool, and I pitched against the Pirates, and I beat them. I got the complete game win that day. Came in and found out I won the pot. So $333 because I think everybody put wow. in a 10 and I think there's 33 cars in the race. Anyway, Sam Hanks, I always remembered him because he helped me win the pot. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. And that's I always cool. love it that I come, coming back, back around to, uh, you know, talking about baseball and especially complete game shutout. And, and uh, you, you know, uh, Jim, I'll I'll go to you real quick uh, before kind of I, I want to ask Carl a little bit about the history of, of Anderson, Indiana. But you know, you're you're uh, yeah. of my more of my generation, uh, the younger ilk. And, and so my question for you is is just growing up in that area, um, you know, what when was the first time you you uh, were aware of Carl Erskine? And, and and tell us about what he means to that region. Well, the first time I was um, ever aware of Carl Erskine was when my mom would talk about him when I was a kid. Um, she was in the homeroom of Gary, yeah. which is his uh, yeah. his, his young, second son. And they, you know, they graduated in 1969 uh, at Anderson. And so the, for four years, they were in the homeroom together, and she talked about Gary and his dad and, uh, you know, told me a little bit about Carl Erskine when I was, you know, little. Um and then I actually met him for the first time when I played for a traveling baseball team out of uh, Selma, Indiana. He came and uh, autographed a few items for us. Um, and then I collected baseball cards as a kid, and I quit, ended up starting a family. And then 2013, the movie 42 came out. Um, we had him up for the fire, at the fire station for breakfast, wanted to talk about the movie. I mean, why not have Carl Erskine up there when you, you have the opportunity to? The movie's going to come out that week. So um, he came up, and we had breakfast and biscuits and gravy, talked some baseball. He talked about the shot heard around the world. Uh, long story short, I've been collecting his memorabilia ever since, since 2013. So and that's fantastic. Uh, and it's, ni- it's, yes. it's nice that you guys were able to uh, you, uh, kindle uh, like this, uh, you know, uh, so, Carl, I believe uh, you were telling me uh, a few months ago that uh, the 100th and the 150th anniversary of Anderson has recently passed. Am I correct? Yeah, we just uh, in 2015, right? Yeah, we, well, we had a kind of a year-long celebration, really, but it culminated in two or three major local events that uh, drew a lot of people. We had a, a, a specific logo. Uh, now I'm not going to sing it, but I even wrote a song about Anderson. So, so we uh, we went the whole route to, uh, yeah. Well, Anderson is on the White River in Indiana, which which uh, eventually goes into the Wabash River, which eventually goes into the Ohio and then the Mississippi. But 
it's a navigable river for boats and uh, canoes, nothing bigger than that. But um, th- there was an Indian uh, village on in Anderson, and uh, the chief of this uh, this Indian village uh, was Kithilinen, but uh, he was half Swede and half uh, Indian, Delaware Indian. And uh, so his last name was Anderson, and they spell it S-O-N, but I think the Swedish spelling is S-E-N. But anyway, uh, that's how Anderson got its name, because uh, this half-breed Indian chief was actually <laughs> had the last name of Anderson. But in, in Indian, in the Delaware language, it was uh, Kithilinen. Well, that was the beginning of Anderson, and then eventually a trading post uh, came here when the whites uh, moved west uh, through uh, Ohio and Indiana. And uh, the trading post was the first in uh, actual uh, city beginning. Uh, and it just it grew over time because uh, it was uh, on a navigable uh, river. And uh, so it, it grew slowly, but uh, and through the 18 and 18... Uh, 16, I believe, Indiana became a state, and um, then from then on, the development just, you know, became more and more. Uh, the Indians were moved west, and uh, the whites took over. So uh, in the early years of um, of the, uh, it was always agricultural, naturally. In, in the beginning years, it was all about agriculture to make a living. And uh, the fur trade was big uh, in that time, because Indiana, along with the whole nation, was pristine. It had never been settled before by anybody but the, the Indians, and so the game was plentiful, and so the fur trade was uh, was big through here. Anyway, uh, time passed, and Anderson became finally a town, uh, a second-class city, they called it. I never liked that term, but that was related to the size of it, and uh, and so, but Anderson is now uh, probably 55,000. Uh, we're 35 miles or so from Indianapolis, uh, and it's a thriving uh, community with a lot of farm ground around it. And uh, we lost General Motors plants uh, back about 20 years ago. That was our main industry. Um, years before that, they found that there was a gas boom in Anderson, which really looked like it was going to put it on the map. And then after the gas uh, ran out <laughs> in a couple, three years, uh, that era came to a close. But Anderson now is on an interstate, I-69, out of Indianapolis to Fort Wayne. And we have some small industry here. And um, it's a good, wholesome uh, place to raise a family. And uh, I was born and raised here. My wife was born and raised here. We went to school. Never left Anderson, actually, because... Uh, we were uh, born and raised here. Our parents lived here. So in my baseball days, we were on one-year contracts. So we didn't stay in the city where we played, Brooklyn, where I started for 10 seasons, and then eventually L.A. You wouldn't want to buy a house on a one-year contract. So the guys of my year always went back to their hometowns. So we did that. So we actually never left Anderson. And my day playing days were over after I was 14 years in pro baseball. And we came back home, and I had to find a new way to make a living. And um, so, but Anderson's been very good to us as a family, and I've been 
very active locally, uh, never got into politics. I felt like I had a better chance in all settings to contribute something to my community by not having a tag on me, a political tag. And so uh, I'd been player representative on the Dodgers for eight years, so I was very comfortable with the UAW and some of the uh, other union uh, locals here. But I also was active with the Chamber of Commerce and uh, the churches and a lot of things in the community. So, uh, Sam, that's a long answer to your question. (laughs) No, it's perfect. Anderson has been up and down uh, economically. I'd say at the moment we're on more of a down uh, position because we're trying to recover yet from losing about 25,000 manufacturing jobs that were high-paying jobs. And many times both the husband and wife worked there, so the spending power in Anderson was very good. Uh, We were the highest per capita income in the state of Indiana at one time. And now I think we probably will, of course, every job in Anderson now, not every job, but most every job, is in the service industry of some kind. Uh, we've got uh, we've got a few smaller industries here, but we don't have that big, heavy-hitting uh, industry of General Motors uh, back uh, oh the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. All those years were... Uh, our whole economy was around uh, General Motors. And we had two divisions here, and they they all made parts. <clears throat> they didn't assemble a car, but they made all the electrical parts uh, for General Motors was made from Anderson because the Remy brothers, two, two brothers, invented the electrical systems uh, in their garage years ago that became the electrical systems for General Motors automobiles. So Anderson was the kind of the capital city of of manufacturing for uh, uh, parts and especially electrical parts and uh, lighting for uh, General Motors. During the war, we were big time manufacturers for war war materials in Anderson, and uh, the population swelled over seventy thousand. And then when GM left, now it's shrunk back to about fifty five. So anyway, I'm proud of my hometown. And, you know, uh, when I was playing baseball, it was typical that you knew the hometowns of almost every guy you played against because, as I said, we were all one-year contracts, and so there was a lot of identity with guys with their hometown. If you if you mention uh, Strawberry Plains, uh, Georgia, uh, I know a guy in the minor leagues that lived there. <laughs> and if you say <laughs> Commerce, Oklahoma, I know that was Mickey Mantle. Um, right. If you know Denora, <laughs> Pennsylvania, I know that was Stan Musial. Well, guys used to say to me on the field, I'd walk across uh, during batting practice, and the opponents would be uh, saying hello or something. He'd say, "What do you say, Anderson?" And so, <laughs> so the, the hometowns were were big in those days, and uh, so it's just um, it's just a change of of the culture. Now, mostly your contracts. A guy got a six, seven-year contract. He doesn't mind leasing a home or even buying one where he's playing. But that wasn't the case uh, during my era, before free agency. Well, I'm guessing uh, Bay Ridge. It got uh, you know near the water. It got quite cold during the winter, uh, so I could understand. But, you know, although I, I know that Anderson certainly has uh, quite the winter too. I 
it's interesting that I, I didn't expect to have uh, the connection to, Indi- to Indiana that I have, but um, my ex-girlfriend is from Crawfordsville now. now so, you know, I, I, I know that's, that's a little, that's a very uh, it's a, a cute small town, um, you know, with a main street, uh, 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 some excellent pre-war buildings uh, on that main street and, you know, some municipal buildings. So I guess my question, uh, since I, I kind of have that as 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 kind of a control uh, aesthetically in my brain uh, regarding uh, some towns in Indiana. So uh, how would you compare if you if you know Crawfordsville at all, uh, uh, Carl? Uh, would you say Anderson is similar in terms of it, its aesthetic and its layout and, and size? Well, yeah, it reflects uh, the areas you're talking about, but Anderson would be bigger than Crawfordsville. Crawfordsville also has uh, Wabash College, which is uh, in Indiana, one of the uh, one of the premier colleges in Indiana. Uh, it's not big, but it's uh, it's one of those. I, Indiana's always had, I think, ge- uh, legitimately uh, looked at as a, a kind of a farm uh, area, which it is, um, and I say wholesomeness. Uh, just uh, Midwestern uh, values, uh, whatever other people think of that, but I think of Midwestern values as family-oriented and uh, hometown-oriented, uh, probably somewhat church-oriented, and um, the wholesomeness of uh, where to raise a family. And that all comes out of, of course, the uh, agricultural background of a lot of people. Uh, now the farms in Indiana are not just... Uh, 40, 80, 120 acres. They're they're huge farms, and uh, an interesting things happen on the landscape across the country. Um, there used to be livestock on almost every farm. There was a lot of uh, cows, hogs, uh, chickens, uh, just a lot of livestock. And uh, now that's been concentrated more in in bigger production areas uh, for milk and uh, eggs and the rest of it. And now you've got no fences uh, that divide off these small farms. And uh, a farmer who used to farm uh, maybe two or 300 acres now farms two or 3,000 acres. And uh, so that's just a change of technology and, uh, and all. But, but the farmland here in Indiana still uh, goes it's pretty valuable and, um, and produces uh, big yields normally. And so Indiana, Iowa, um, uh, known mostly for corn, soybeans, but um, that's a big part of our economy. Indiana uh, exports a lot. Uh, You wouldn't think about that so much, but a lot of farm products uh, from Indiana are are exported overseas. So um, it it drives our economy somewhat here in the Midwest. Uh, Jim, how did you get into firefighting? Well, back in um, 1996, um, I was married, and my wife at that time, her father, had just became the fire chief, and um, they were getting ready to do a hiring process that year. So I, I went and filed a applica- put an application in, and I didn't even tell my father-in-law I was doing it, and they laid on his desk. So I went through the process got hired and I'll have 20 years on at the end of this year. It's been a great job. It's been a really great job. Um, met a lot of great people. 
very rewarding job. Um, I'm now on the ambulance right now. The past 12 years I've been on the ambulance. So uh, you see everything on the ambulance. Um, but it's just been a, been a great job. And uh, you had asked me what Carl Erskine is at uh, Anderson. I never did get to that. I'm sorry. Uh, he was actually voted um, most influential person in Anderson's history. Um, I think I might have posted that on Facebook. Uh, there's a list of 50 wonderful, uh, wonderful names around around the uh, Anderson County, and uh, he was he was voted uh, uh, most influential person, and uh, he uh, he he definitely deserved it. He definitely deserved it, and he stayed in Anderson. Um, and I've got many stories of people talking because being on Amos, I meet a lot of people that he um, he went to school with um, that knows, and you know you hear stories stories from retired firemen. He'd come back to Anderson, and uh, there'd be snowball fights in his neighborhood, and he'd teach people how to fish, and he's just, uh, he's definitely a hometown hero, hometown hero, Carl Erskine. Well, it, so it's, it's been, interesting, uh, Carl, uh, the the uh, the connection to, uh, you know, service uh, people. Uh, just, I, I always think, of course, uh, um, about uh, 9-11 here in, in Brooklyn, and um, it, it, it it just seems as if uh, that that's uh, that's a group of people, not just the firemen, but service the service industry in general, uh, that really you you know comes around uh, athletes uh, stopping in and 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 take you know taking their time to uh, to not only uh, give their time to the actual people, but you know uh, uh, the community as well. Well, you know, uh, Brooklyn to Betty and me, uh, kind of like a second home. But but when 9-11 happened, uh, a friend of mine who is a chaplain for, uh, I think, in the sheriff's department here, uh, Benny Santiago is his name, but he's from Brooklyn. and But he lives here in Anderson, and he's a chaplain for the, uh, uh, maybe the firefighters as well. I'm not sure about that, Jimmy, but I know he's in the sheriff's um, department. I, I think he does help out, yes. Yeah, and he works with a lot of youth who are uh, troubled youth and so forth. Anyway, when 9-11 happened, uh, Benny called me and he said, Hey, Carl, you wrote a book, didn't you? And I said, Yeah. Uh, what's the name of it? Oh, Tales from the Dodger Dugout. And he said, Look, you got any copies of that? Well, he was going back to Brooklyn after 9-11, where all those firehouses in Brooklyn sent their uh, three, 400, whatever, uh, to the towers. And they lost. They lost over 300 men of all levels, hierarchy in the department, clear down to the rookies. They just lost yeah. 100, these three or 400 guys. And so there was devastation in the in the Brooklyn firehouses. And so they needed counseling. So Benny Santiago was one person to go back. So he said, you got any of those books, Carl? I said, yeah, I can scrape up a few. So I gave him a bunch of books. Tales from the Dodger Dugout. It's it's full of short stories about things that really happened on the field or wherever in Brooklyn. So he takes those back and he, he uses those as he goes to the different firehouses, and he leaves a copy. And I sign them all. And so when the firemen uh, and the hierarchy they they got the wind of this, uh, I went to Brooklyn for a function one time uh, at the new ballpark there. The uh, Mets have a minor league team called the Cyclones in Brooklyn. And uh, I went back there for a deal, and the fire guys called me and said, Hey, look, you don't get a car. When you come to, when you fly into New York, you don't rent a car, don't get a cab, 
uh, don't get a driver, you call us. <laughs> I don't take advantage of that, but if I go to Brooklyn, there's a few guys there that, that they said, well, I did it one time. They sent a car for me. Uh, I think it might have been a chief's car, a nice wagon, a station wagon. Picked me up, said, where do you want to go? And they took me to two or three stops, including Bay Ridge, to look at the old oh. neighborhood. And so I still correspond cool. with few few firemen in Brooklyn. Now, now that's a connection that is precious to me. That to think these guys, you know, there's one thing about New York. People get a, a, a bad rap about New York. New York, if you talk to police officers or firemen in New York, these are these are young men or men, uh, maybe women as well, who are traditionally for generations a police officer or a fireman. I mean, it's not yes. just like some guy getting a job. These these fam- many of these families are go back to three four generations at least uh, of uh, firemen uh, police officers. And when nine eleven happened, there was a bonding with New York that had not existed, where people began to see past this facade of uptown and uh, kind of haughty, uh, looking down your nose at uh, the rest of the world, that New York has a deep sensitivity of family. And uh, you could see it through the firemen and the the police officers. So we had a new appreciation, really, I did. And, uh, but... But isn't that neat now that the fire guys at New York? <laughs> if I go to New York, I don't do this. I don't. I don't lean on this. But they call me once in a while, and uh, some of them do. So I kind of keep in touch. And these are, in some cases, older the older firemen that kind of remember the era when Brooklyn had a mm-hmm. team. But uh, but that's a connection with Brooklyn that I never dreamed would happen. <laughs> So it's pretty yeah. neat. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I, 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 I like lean on that one. Right there. Yeah, it's it's like you said, it's, it's that deep connection to family. It, it runs uh, generations, and I also think it, it says a lot about the type of impact that you and uh, the Dodger team had on Brooklyn. Uh, um, and and uh, just to let uh, our audience know, uh, we may bleed into the archive, but uh, anything that you miss uh, after ten. 10 a.m. Uh, you'll be able to catch on the archive. Uh, uh, just just click on the link. Once we're done with the show, you'll be able to listen to the entire uh, the show in its entirety. Um, it, growing up, uh, you know, as as an athlete in Anderson, Indiana, uh, I'm I'm actually currently, uh, believe it or not, I I, I bought it an apartment, and it happens to be a block away from Holy Cross Cemetery, where your fellow uh, Indianan. Uh, Gil Hodges at, at his final resting place. Um, when you were coming up uh, in Anderson, Indiana, as a pitcher, uh, when, when was the first time you were aware of Gil, and did you guys ever meet before being teammates? No, the, the connection I had with Hodges was through the scout who who was scouting Indiana, and he was a part-time scout. His name was Stanley yeah. Feasel. He was in Indianapolis. He was a sporting goods wholesaler. But he carried a uh, scout card, which they call uh, kind of a uh, – he, he was just kind of a part-time scout. But since he was in the business of selling athletic goods, he was he was around at the universities and high schools uh, all over the state. So he scouted uh, and located Hodges um, 
and, and got Gil signed for the Dodgers. And then two years later, uh, he'd been scouting me in high school, and I got out of the Navy after high school. He signed me. And then two years after he signed me, he signed a player from Lafayette, Indiana, named Bob Friend, who pitched for the Pirates mm-hmm. eventually. So he had Stanley Fiesel, uh, kind of an unknown name in baseball, had three major league players in the big leagues at the same time that he had scouted and found. So I didn't meet Gill personally until I went to the Dodgers in 1948, but I was connected with Gill through this uh, scout who had signed him and then and then signed me and then later signed Bob Friend. So, uh, but Gill and I became very good friends, and uh, both being in Indiana, we we shared a lot of. Uh, things together. I got to know his parents uh, over time. Uh, his father died. He was a coal miner. Uh, his father died young, uh, in his 50s, of a massive heart attack. Uh, ironically, uh, Gil died the same way in the early, his, his early 50s, and then his younger brother Bob died the same way, massive heart attacks, in their early 50s. All three of them. I used to stop and see Mrs. Hodges uh, in uh, Petersburg, Indiana. I'd go down through there on Highway 57. I'd always stop, big white house on the hill, and go in, and we'd drink coffee, and she'd have the picture of her three boys, she'd call them, and she just uh, would talk about Gil and Gil's dad and, and Gil's brother. So yeah, I had a close tie with Gil and his family. Yeah, it, it's uh, pretty special and pretty remarkable, uh, and, and it's also like you just said. It, it, I, I didn't know that about his uh, the you know his brother or his father, and it, it seems as if it might have been not only uh, uh, an issue the fact that he was a chain smoker, um, but also it might you know it just might have been a, a it might have run in the family, and, and unfortunately well, it's think, just the, yeah. how well, how it happens. And, and you know, being a big Mets fan too, that that's. Uh, it's still you look back at that the history of the Mets franchise and and it it it's still they've still had to recover from that jarring event I think. Oh yeah, well Gil of course was an outstanding player, very quiet guy, smart. He was a very very smart. He had great instincts for baseball. He could steal signs and and he was he was great at uh, when a bunt was in order. He uh, he could he could figure out. Uh, steal a sign. He knew when the bunt was coming. He, he, he just was smart. Uh, we never thought he'd be a good manager because he's too quiet. But when I talked to Tom Seavers, who played for Gill, he said, oh, yeah, he was quiet. But he could give you a look and it uh, would scorch your shorts off. And uh, you couldn't play. You couldn't fool around with Hodges. Hodges was tough, but he was like Alston in a way. Alston was tough, but not in the sense of throwing chairs in the clubhouse or cussing uh, or anything, he, and Hodges was, he has a record that's not in the books, he has a record that he was never, listen to me, never booed in Brooklyn. Now, I don't care who you were, Pee Wee Reese, Duke Snyder, Dixie Walker, all the famous names of Brooklyn players, sometime along the way in a slump, they got booed. Hodges had some big slumps. But he had mm-hmm. this. They prayed. Hey, huh? They prayed. <laughs> no, yeah, they prayed. No, they prayed for Gil. And uh, yeah, and anyway, 
but it's amazing that uh, you'd have a bad day in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn fans said, oh, you lousy Oishkin, uh, we're going to trade you to the Giants. <laughs> well, that, I mean, but Hodges, it's, it's true. They never booed. Even Gill went over 21 in the 52 World Series, and we got beat in seven games. If he just hits a little bit, we may have won the uh, we may have won the series in 52 instead of 55. But they never booed Gill. And uh, of course, the church. I went to his funeral, and and the church, the Catholic church, where the funeral was held, uh, we were honorary pallbearers as some of uh, his former teammates, and. Um, there was one thing happened. Every time Hodges would hit a home run or every time I would come in to pitch, Gladys Gooding, the organist at Evans Field, would play back home in Indiana. So other than the national anthem in the 1950s, back home in Indiana was played more than any other song at Evans Field because Hodges hit a lot of home runs. I've, I was in over 300 games, and uh, she, Gladys Gooding always played it. Now, at the, at the funeral... We were following the casket out of the uh, church after the service was concluded. So the pallbearers, the honorary pallbearers, were following Gil's casket back out of the church. And as we were walking out, the organist, I think Gladys Gooding, was at that funeral playing. And she played back home in Indiana. I'm going to tell you, it got me so bad. I could not speak to Howard Cosell who was waiting outside with his uh, camera crew, and he put the mic in front of me, and he said, uh, ask me a question. And I couldn't answer him. I, I just finally yeah. uttered just uh, under my breath somehow, Howard, not now, not now. I cannot speak. Uh, but that was one of the most emotional moments of my life, to hear back home in Indiana walking out uh, behind the uh, uh, the casket of Gil Hodges. But, uh, but Gil was... Um, an outstanding manager. He should be in the Hall of Fame, not just because he was a great player, which he was, and he has the credentials, but he also managed, and he would have been an outstanding uh, manager had he lived longer. But uh, they won't, the Hall of Fame will not take into account uh, both. You either have to make the Hall of Fame as a manager or you have to make it as a player. And I say they, he may should make it for the contribution he made to baseball overall. But uh, yeah. so far, the Hall of Fame doesn't see it that way. Well, hopefully one day this whole Veterans Committee uh, thing can can get corrected because, uh, you know, there's also that, that uh, infamous story about how Roy Campanella's vote was uh, yeah. discounted uh, right. by Ted Williams, which just sounds like, like he was this close, you know, right. and he's been this close uh, for, for a long time, and, and hopefully uh, – the right thing can be done uh, uh, very, very shortly. Now, now, um, uh, Jim, before we got on the air, you were talking about uh, uh, the anniversary of Carl's no-hitters, um, and I, I was able to pull pull it up on, on the Internet, of course, and uh, it looks like, uh, so, so, Carl, your first one uh, was June 19, 1952, against the Cubbies, uh, and, and um, it looks like the, the, uh, the second one was May 12th, 1956 uh, against the Giants, also at Evans Field, and and the Cubbies are are going to be an interesting segue. Um, but I, I, uh, before we get to to the Cubbies in modern baseball, because I wanted to ask you uh, that about the region. Um, but 
in in terms of of your no hitters, both of them happen at Ebbets Field, and and I think what's what's so remarkable about that is considering uh, Ebbets Field was always considered baseball's pinball machine. Uh, you know, it, it certainly was was more of a hitter's park uh, in an era of very vast outfields. It's it certain, you know, Ebbets Field uh, was designed to be very tightly knitted into a city block. Uh, um, you know, as opposed to, uh, let's say, City Field, which was built on a parking lot, and, and they, they messed up the dimensions. But, uh, w- w- you know, how, did, how do you think that works? That, uh, uh, you know, what, what was it about your pitching uh, that was able to produce two no-hitters at Ebbets Field? Yeah, well, of course, no-hitters are kind of strange animals. Uh, they happen out of nowhere sometimes. Uh, I never, I was never bothered by pitching at Ebbets Field. We had a short... Uh, right field fence, 297 down the right field line. Now, that's pretty short for a major league ballpark. They had a high screen, but um, you could hit a guy on the fist and uh, the ball would still carry enough to hit to hit above the fielders. Are you still there, Sam? Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, I thought I heard something go, something clicked. Anyway, uh, I never was bothered a lot. Uh, the, the bad thing about Evans Field was not so much the uh, short fences, it was no foul territory. There was very little foul territory in Ebbets Field because, uh, like uh, Wrigley Field, the last of the parks I pitched in is Wrigley Field. Uh, the the bullpens are out in the open, and they're real close to the stands. There's hardly any foul territory. So you get you get a good hitter with men on base to pop up, and there's no place to to carry. He goes in the seats. <laughs> and so that was the <laughs> hardest part. But I never had a jinx feeling about Evans Field. We always scored runs there. We hardly ever got shut out. And uh, I didn't know that this uh, happened, but the New York writers called me one time and said, would you come to New York to receive an award? And I said, for what? This was uh, years after my playing days. They said, well, we go back and look at things that are kind of overlooked uh, at the time. Uh, you're the only pitcher in the history of Evans Field to pitch two no-hitters there. there were, I think there were nine no-hitters over the history of uh, Brooklyn uh, pitch no, somebody pitched a no hitter there, but uh, they said nobody pitched two, but you. So now, uh, as records go, uh, that can't ever be broken. So, so I, guess, <laughs> yeah. I, guess, I can explain <laughs> yeah. that. But well, both the no hitters, I am really pleased we're in Brooklyn because uh, if you can perform well in front of the home fans, that that's a plus, particularly in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn was kind of an orphan borough in New York. You know, it it, it was a church, uh, a city of churches. Uh, it didn't have any major hotels uh, much. Had one, uh, St. George, but uh, and not too many major restaurants. It was uh, it was a community of uh, residentials, uh, uh, botanical gardens, uh, churches, and, and so uh, it kind of took a back seat politically and everything in New York. And it never had a winning, consistently winning team until the Jackie Robinson era uh, from 47 to 57. And um, so New York, uh, we kind of, uh, Brooklyn kind of took its place uh, behind the uptown and the, the Bronx and the rest of it. But uh, the, the community there embraced that team so much because they were proud to have a major league team in their city. They just begged, begged, begged to have a World Series championship, and it never happened. Then we had some great teams that played in the series against the Yankees, 
and we couldn't win the seventh game. And so it took forever for us to finally win in 1955, and so that put Brooklyn, uh, the heart of Brooklyn finally uh, had been fulfilled, and we had a championship team. Uh, you know, I'm disappointed we didn't repeat in 56 because we had another uh, pretty good team in 56. Uh, we got beaten seven games uh, in 56. But but the city of Brooklyn uh, embraced the team, and when we finally were – now, let me tell you, a love affair. You can, you can talk pretty nasty to your spouse in a love affair because you're married. <laughs> and you know. Well, that's kind of what it was in Brooklyn. If you played bad, they told you, you guys are lousy. <laughs> And you good. Oh, you couldn't you couldn't be embraced any greater. When you and I'll tell good. you that leg that legacy's still there, you know, because when when you go over ten uh, at City Field, you, you're going to have poopers out there. That's for sure. They're, yeah, they're, right. The right. National well, League in New York is is thriving. I, I would say. And uh, we have less than five minutes before. Unfortunately, we're going to get cut off. But uh, uh, Jim, I'll start with you and Carl. You can pick up uh, uh, from Jim afterwards. Uh, the Cubbies right now, you know, the be- best they've been in uh, uh, 109 years, really. It's the best uh, start they've had since they won the World Series. They have won World Series uh, in uh, 1907 and 1908. Uh, so, you know, I-, I know you guys are, I believe you guys are, are less than an hour or, or at least, uh, you know, less than two hours from Chicago. Uh, Jim, what's the yeah, feeling what's up, right uh, now? Uh, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot of Cubby fever out there. Well, we got a lot of Cubs fans on the fire department, and, uh, you know, we get groups of, of 16, 18 of us, and we go watch the Cubs and Reds. Um, we haven't done that in, in uh, quite some time, but uh, we have a lot of Cubby fans in this town, a lot of Reds fans, but, you know, anytime the Cubs can win, it's uh, it makes a lot of people happy around here. Uh, but, it, you know, they got some great pitching this year. They got a couple – I'm actually was born in Baltimore – um, was only there for about six months, and we came back to Anderson. So I was born a, a Orioles fan, and um, they got a couple pitchers from our uh, our baseball team in Jake Arietta and, and, and Hamill, and they have been just uh, on fire this year for the Cubs. And of course, Arietta was on fire last year. He's um, what's he went seventeen, eighteen in a row. He's won at home. He um, he's, he's, you know, he's just yeah. His, his ERA is. You know, sub two. Um, you know, that's it's good things in Chicago right now. I tell you that, really good. They got a, they got an all star team out there right now, and they're going to be tough to beat. Tough to beat. Yeah, they were. They they showed signs last year in the playoffs of uh, of actually now being a quality team. They could beat anybody, and they they didn't win last year. But I pulled for them after the Dodgers were eliminated. I pulled for the Cubs yes. because my parents were yeah. Cub fans. And uh, I can tell you, Stan Hack is a name you wouldn't know, but he was a third baseman for the Cubs. And Bob Elston was their broadcaster in radio days. And believe me, he was a famous name and a famous voice. And the Cubs were, even though they didn't win, uh, they were very popular. And let me tell you, if the Cubs should win a World Series, the Chicago Fire we've been reading about for years, that would be like a small campfire. Yeah, right. Chicago is going to go up. That's right. I'm telling you, and it may be That's most right. of Illinois, but uh, yeah. no, there's such a pent up uh, uh, desire to see a Cubs team win. I can relate to that from Brooklyn because it took so long for Brooklyn to win a series, 
And so I can I get that feeling that in Chicago, if this is going to happen, this is going to be a landmark uh, date in oh. the history of baseball for the Cubs to win uh, or even get in a World Series. I think the last series they were actually in was 45. That's correct. And, Thanks for uh, too. They didn't mm-hmm. win it, but they, they were in the series. And that's a small ballpark, too. That's a tough park to pitch in, for, uh, mostly because of wind. And um, because wind seems like, at least to me, pitching is always blowing out. But uh, but it's not an easy park to to pitch in, and uh, but the Cubs signed me, uh, tried to sign me as a high school player, and uh, I, I did, there was no draft in those days, so uh, major league teams could sign a player at any age, so they signed kids at 15, 16 years old, but I didn't want to get uh, ineligible for other sports in in uh, Anderson. If you could make the Anderson Indians basketball team in Anderson. You made the – that was the big leagues in Anderson. Yes. was to play on the Anderson Indians basketball team. So but I played uh, three three seasons uh, in high school. And um, and so basketball – when I see people on the street, sometimes they'll talk about a game. I think it's going to be about – no, that game, that game you played.